Good morning. I would like to ponder with you for a few moments the connection of dukkha and mindfulness and um, in fact differing dimensions of transformation that come into our lives when we apply mindfulness. Let us start with the term dukkha again. It is so crucial because if we misunderstand this term or if we take it too narrow, much of value in the Buddhist teaching just bypasses us simply because we do not know how to apply that teaching to a condition he refers to as dukkha that is so much bigger than the English term suffering connotes. The word is old. The term is used by the Aryan invaders of India. Um, In Sanskrit it means, somewhat later, space, initially sky, and from that space. But the old Indian um, immigrants, if you so want, the Aryan folk who invaded the Indian subcontinent from um, Asia Minor. They were, they had the big advantage of using horses and carts. So one of the very earliest meaning of the term dukkha is uh, the term ka, in fact, is the the hole of an axle. It's that hole where the axle of a cart goes into. The prefix is su, were good, and the prefix du was bad or unhappy. And so, um, the term dukkha meant having a bad axle hole. So, in other words, you have going to have an uncomfortable ride. So, this is, I think, is very interesting because psychologically we have a tendency to attribute dukkha to outside occurrences. But in fact, it refers to the space the mind falls into when meeting with unpleasant or unwelcome experiences. In a way, we could say, very casually, to experience dukkha would mean to be in a bad hole. To experience sukkha would be to be in a good hole. Very much in the spirit of the old Aryan users of the word dukkha and sukkha. Having a, a sukkha axle hole meant your ride was going to be smooth and filled with contentment and your Dukkha, Axel Hall, was going to give you a bumpy ride. So there are different forms of Sukha and Dukkha. Uh, the Dukkha comes in the uh, very well-known three uh, triads of I don't want to go into now. And the Sukha generally isn't a problem. So let's stay with the Dukkha. There are facets of dukkha that are not immediately apparent. Oscar Wilde says there are only there are two tragedies. There are only two real tragedies. One is not getting what you want, and the second, the real one, is to get it. So why 
what do you say that completely not in the spirit of Oscar Wilde who would disagree with me um, uh, I'm sure on what follows is let us have a look why is getting it the worst of the two tragedies one apparent form of dukkha is when we get it is that it doesn't deliver for reasons we have not foreseen our expectation was bigger than the result we got exactly what we wanted but somehow it doesn't do what we expected or somehow we are not the people who we thought we were in other words the result is some form of disappointment and the resulting emotion is something like bewildering confusion disenchantment another way of how getting it can still be suffering is when we don't get enough of it it breeds discontent and longing or greed we want more that's the right stuff but it doesn't quite hit the spot we need more of it one of the first words my little niece was saying when she learned to speak was the Swiss German equivalent of give me more of it no me no me accompanied by a fairly indicative hand gesture you know reaching out for the next little pickled uh, a corn cob um, what else can happen when we get it what else are possibilities for suffering when we get it yeah. we can get it and we can be quite happy with it and then we start fearing and worrying about losing it we need to start thinking what would happen if it suddenly stopped or if somebody else got it first or so our response is one of anxiety it is one of control it is one of uh, worry very profound experience if you look at affluent societies this is a big issue it's not immediately apparent why suicide statistics in Switzerland should be bigger than in, in, in Bihar, India. It's not immediately apparent. But it's very clear that people, even though they have affluence and wealth and uh, in many ways privileges and advantages people in Bihar, India don't have, they still experience a lot of worry and depression and suffering around this. So we can get it, and instead of simply enjoying it, we can start to worry about losing it, and about how to maintain it, and how to control it, and how to fix it. But this is a, a very obvious form of suffering. And finally, we can get it. It is exactly as great as we thought for about 10 seconds, and then we think, really, yeah, good this is it and then another 10 seconds later we start getting slightly bored with it yeah. taking it for granted then getting bored with it 
becoming ungrateful. Maybe it's not 10 seconds, maybe it's three weeks. But the principle, I think, applies. So, we cannot get it. This is obvious frustration, and maybe anger. We can get it, and it, is, it doesn't deliver, and we're confused. We can get it, and it's not enough. We get greedy. We can get it, and we're afraid of losing it. Yeah? We start to worry. We can get it, and we get bored of it. And again, we've fallen to some forms of discontent. There's many ways of how getting it can be a tragedy. Oscar Wilde was right. So how does mindfulness meet Dukkha? And how does mindfulness, when meeting Dukkha, is able to transform? Let me try to do a little map. Let's be very sober about this. One way mindfulness can transform <coughs> the experience of suffering by helping us choose, very bluntly, by changing the focus of our attention. We can have a distressing conversation and rather than thinking on about this distressing conversation, we can by choice shift the focus of our attention from away from the thoughts of this conversation and the memories and how she looked when she said this. We can shift it to how he feels in the body to be angry. Or even better, how it feels in the body when the body is breathing. And we can, by choice, steady our attention on another content, a content that is less likely to induce suffering in us. This sounds very simple. The truth is that most of our attention, and by consequence, most of the stuff we're, if that attention has become fluid, are mindful of, is, is involuntary, as I said a few days ago. It's habitual. It's reactive attention. It goes to where it's nice, and it tries to go away from where it's not nice. <coughs> By being aware enough that we have a choice on what to bestow our attention to, to grant it, what to direct it to, we have already a major advantage. So the first strategy of transformation of suffering through mindfulness is by choosing the content, choosing the what in a more skillful way. The second strategy, if you so want, of meeting suffering with mindfulness is not by changing the content, but by changing the way how we relate to it. We change how we set ourselves in relationship to the content of our experience. Maybe that distressing conversation can be held in a wider content. Instead of turning away from the unpleasantness of it, I can actually resolve to meet that experience, rather than trying not to have it, which would be the intuitive, quote-unquote, the normal, the habituated, the conditioned reactive response to something unpleasant, turning away from it, hoping it would stop, if not replacing it with something nicer. Instead of doing that, I voluntarily choose to be with it, which is utterly counterintuitive. Why would I choose to be with something that is unpleasant, that doesn't feel good or gratifying? And yet, we all know that relationship, that choice of turning towards 
what is unpleasant and what creates suffering is often the first step of a powerful transformation. It is that turning towards, that offering spaciousness, offering interest, offering availability, offering a welcoming gesture, even to things we don't intrinsically like, is often a powerful transformative step. Obviously this is a skill. It's not something we seem to be graced with naturally. So meeting the dukkha as a second strategy, directly and against all our conditioning, turning to be interested, curious, investigating, in a willingness to actually have it. That's the big second uh, dimension of transformation. When we have as a resource in the first strategy, just a simple recall that we have a choice, that we always have a choice. Here in the second strategy, the resource is that we recall all the forces of non-reactivity. Metta for non-anger, Kanti, patient forbearance instead of impulsiveness, reactivity. Um, contentment, santuti, instead of greed. We have quite a few resources there. The third strategy is big. This is, we're changing the view, we're changing the big picture. Much of our suffering is experienced in highly personal terms. My failures, my rejection, my ill health, my lack of fantasy, my shoddiness, my horrible history, my many hang-ups, my diagnosis. We understand, not by a situational intervention, but by a deepening understanding of our existential situation, we understand that many of our anticipated deals with the universe are based on a fundamental misunderstanding. Dukkha is not just a personal mishap, it is a universal lakana, it is a hallmark of all conditioned experience. Things have an intrinsic imperfection, even the perfect bits, even the nicest bits, even the best job has that intrinsic flaw, that intrinsic imperfection, that intrinsic nature of not being able to satisfy me. So I begin to understand by working with things like the three characteristics, gradually undoing what Buddhist psychology calls the viparyasas, the distortions, the distortion that things are permanent, the distortion that lead me to seek in that which is not self, a permanent self, that lead me to seek in that which is bound up with forms of unhappiness, genuine happiness, and as a fourth one that lead me to seek in what is not necessarily beautiful, 
that which is intrinsically beautiful. Uh, these four forms, the Pali tradition calls them vipalasa, distortions of mind. We begin to uproot that. That is how the way ignorance manifests psychologically through these forms of distortion. Inside they make us, they affect our perceptions, our realm of sanya, they affect our thinking, the uh, realm of ditti, and they affect our realm of emoting, our affective and uh, understanding domain, our citta. Outside, they make us believe exactly what I have said. They lead us to seek in what is impermanent solidity, in what is uh, bound up with suffering, uh, happiness, in what is impersonal and elemental. They lead me to seek for a self that is enduring, and in what is not beautiful, they lead me to seek beauty. So I begin to work with mindfulness in all of my areas of life and to gradually weed these wrong understandings. And such a gradual, broad kind of work helps me to shift the big picture, namely that I should be exempt from suffering. I basically agree with these Buddhists, everybody suffers, but somehow I still expect that I be made an exemption for. I know it sounds irrational, but who hasn't been there, you know, honestly? We all know it and we secretly believe because we know it, it doesn't hit us. We're going to be spared. It looks like we're not. And wisening up and acknowledging this is what shifts the big picture. This is the third strategy in how mindfulness helps us to transform suffering. So ponder these um, possibilities, ponder these connections and uh, May you be in a good hole today. Yeah.